Academy Award nominee Carey Mulligan and Emmy nominee Zoe Kazan star in She Said as New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who together broke one of the most important stories in a generation. A story that shattered decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood and ignited a shift in American culture that continues to this day. The film co-stars Oscar nominee Patricia Clarkson, Emmy winner Andre Brower, and Tony winner Jennifer Ely, with Academy Award nominee Samantha Morton. She Said arrives in theaters November 18. know the pop podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from science fiction to documentaries from country to hip-hop i'm graham williamson film critic for the geek show and horrified and this week i've been joined by mark harrison i'm a film writer and occasional quiz master on filmstories.co.uk vodzilla.co and various other outlets now this week we're traveling back to 2012 a time when a lot of people worried about the apocalypse so eight years out but never mind and one of the most bizarre portents of the end times was that a film starring kylie minogue had won an award at the Cannes film festival then people saw it and realized that was one of the least bizarre things about it Mark and I have been brought here this week in celebration of the beauty of the act that is Leos Carax's Holy Motors. So, I mean, where, where can we possibly start? I, I kind of want to start with the film itself before Kylieing, because a lot of people will have seen this bizarre film because Kylie Minogue is in it. I am such a ponce that I had the opposite journey. I watched it because it was a new film from the director of Paula X, and it led me eventually to become an ardent fan of the uh, underground recording artiste, the chanteurs that uh, it introduced me to, which is one Miss Kylie Minogue. Wow, so it's a so it's a win for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. You know what it's like with That's Kylie. Good. Everyone talks about needing an entry point into her work, and this was mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd, I had one of those things where I didn't know she was in it at all until I saw the film. This was when I was um, taking the bus to the Tyneside Cinema and watching three or four films in a day. I can't remember what I watched this with, but I doubt it was anything like... <laughs> as unique i mean wow i mean I, I i should really try and find out what it was that i watched at the same time as this i know it was likely very likely another foreign film but like this blew me away it was one of my favorite films of that year and i still mm. don't understand it at all <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have theories <laughs> we'll 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 get into those <laughs> what well, to describe it as as baldly as possible uh it begins with a man played by the director leos Carrick's finding uh hidden door in his apartment 
he unlocks it with a key that grows out of his finger. Yeah, look, if you haven't seen the film, you're going to have to get along with a lot more than this. Mm, And he (laughs) he walks into a cinema where everyone is asleep and there is a big good boy walking down the aisle. And then it ditches that entirely. It starts off again in this modernist house where a very kind of yuppie-looking guy called Monsieur Oscar, played by the miracle, the Fortian event that is Denis Levant, uh, is going to work in a big limousine driven by Celine, his driver, played by Edith Scobb, who has, I mean, has worked with Bunuel and just hundreds of people, but is still probably most famous as the uh, plastic surgery patient in Eyes Without a Face. And as they drive, we become aware that this persona that Monsieur Oscar has, this sort of hard-edged, middle-aged businessman, is literally that. It is a persona. He unpeels it and puts on another disguise of an elderly homeless woman, and he goes out and he acts as her for a bit. And for nine more episodes, he goes across France in this limousine playing a series of parts sometimes with no obvious audience sometimes interacting with people who we assume are not actors sometimes interacting with people who definitely are other actors including Eva played by Kylie Minogue at least twice he he gets murdered and he just sort of walks it off yeah it's a lot isn't it it is a lot um I mean with with that opening Mm. With that opening bumper, it's like you sort of see, all oh, right, okay, so this is a, a metaphorical reading on uh, it's, a, it's about cinema and it's mm. about the art of cinema, and that's the that's the thing. And in interviews, he's gone, no, no, it's not that. It's, it's <laughs> what am I supposed to read it as? Is <laughs> that I mean, there are layers to this. It isn't straightforwardly anything. It's 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 not yeah. a straightforward film at all. What it is is incredibly. I mean, I'll, I'll say cinematic, even though mm. it, it's not about cinema. You know, it's like the the, the thing of the, the dreamlike opening of like going into the cinema to watch the film that we're watching. It's like fairly, you know, the Muppet movie opens in a similar way. That's maybe the most normal thing that happens. <laughs> My question to you is this. What, what is Monsieur Oscar's job? Do you, reckon he, do you reckon he is an actor or do you reckon he is something a bit more existentially troubling? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because th- this is one of the things that I wanted to say about the movie is that I've I've watched it I think four times now, uh, maybe more, maybe five, and every time I see it, there seems to be a different reading in it, and I'm not sure whether it's because it, it's a complex text, although it is, and I, but it could just be that I change and the world changes, and what I think I keeps on coming to me the last couple of times I've watched it is that Leos Carax has actually beat Ken Loach to be the first person to make a film about the gig economy yeah I mean yeah that's 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 how I was reading it I did I did look at it with the like on my most recent reviewing it's it's um I watched it earlier this week for this podcast Mm. and it's coming back to again it's thinking about how I looked at it at the time I think I saw it twice in the cinema yeah I must have seen it twice in the cinema 
and on the second view and I had like a I have a theory that I'm still nursing I don't know if it still stands or not but I'll, I'll quick get into that as we get more into the into the film but it is it's the it, the experience of it is incredible but you just you start to look at it as you say it gets murdered twice yeah <laughs> it's really just like and he just rolls on to the next thing it's looking at him going through it as a voyeur as you know as a sort of the omniscient viewer and then looking at how other people are reacting to him whether mm. they acknowledge that they are too going from one role to an next that they are that there's visible machinery in between each episode you know th- this is essentially just like an anthology film but the difference yeah. is in between you see the actor going through emotions and go right well what are we doing now <laughs> yeah it's, it's and and the the whole of it is is overwhelming so mm. I think maybe we may, maybe need to go through bit by bit with this one. Yeah, should we do that? Because the, the first one is the the beggar scene, which I think is essentially just to get you warmed up to the idea. I don't think there's really any extra resonance in that idea. It's just as far as you can get from how we're introduced to Monsieur Oscar to let you know that yeah. this guy completely changes shape. Yeah, and it is at this juncture that I should say I didn't know going in what this was about. So <laughs> you see a guy going from being, you know, from um, being told work hard, dad, and then going and being an investment banker slash arms dealer slash whatever he's doing in the limo to dressing up as a woman and begging. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes from there to one of the most spectacular scenes, which involves him dressing up in a motion capture suit and th- I should actually say the first time I heard about this movie was when I was following news from Cannes and there was someone who watched it and then tweeted a lot of stuff that happened and th- there is something about having someone baldly tell you also then he stops being a beggar and he dresses in a mocap suit so he can have sex with a CGI dragon that really does impress on you what kind of film this is Mm. I mean, the, the location of that, the, the 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 long lead up to him going in front of the green screen and being in the the suit with the little balls on it is is you know is where you start to think, all oh, right, so his comments. If you're still thinking it's a film about cinema, you idiots, then you look at it like it's it's uh, you're looking at the industrial complex where he is. You know, it's it's not a place, it's not a movie studio. It's a giant like chemical plant or something mm. that he's sort of walking into. Um, you know, there's a, there's a transitional bit with a skywalk where there's someone walking in the other direction that's the closest it looks to, say, like a Hollywood studio backlot, as opposed to somewhere, you know, as opposed to ICI. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he finds himself in this place doing this thing that post, like they made this post Avatar. So again, you think in commentary on cinema, really. It's the, it, it's the taking of his movement. And God, as you say, Dennis Levant is, is a miraculous actor. Like the physicality of that scene, what he's doing. Yeah. Incredible. Look at him. Yeah, and by the end of that, you by the end of that sequence, before he moves off in the level again, you see the rendered version of what it's going to be, and it, it looks it's there's nothing extraordinary about a giant CGI creature contorting itself like that. But you've watched yeah. him, you watched him do his thing where he's um, he's he's fighting and he's firing a gun and he's running on a treadmill, mm. like you know, could you know, oddly prescient for when it was made. Because as I said, just kind of just kind of um, post-Avatar, but, you know, looking at it 10 years on, all that's really missing is a big CGI Thanos bringing him on the other side <laughs> yes. of, of him, like, doing the motions of, like, swinging around like Captain America style and that kind yeah. of thing. And it's, yeah, I mean, it, it's, again, where you sort of, 
think, all oh, right, I'm, I'm getting a handle on this. So it's an actor's commentary on acting. And then mm. the next sequence happens. <laughs> yeah. So w- one of the things that I was going to ask you is, are there any sequences where you think the people he is interacting with are definitely not other actors or whatever it is that he's doing? Because this is, this is one of the ones where I think there are obviously some people he meets here who are on the outside of this weird world he's in. This is where he plays the role of Monsieur Merd, a uh, character that Levant and Carax had previously used as the middle section of their contribution to the anthology film Tokyo, which also features uh, contributions from Bong Joon-ho and Mikel Gondry. Uh, Kylie collaborator, Mikel Gondry, yeah, mm. all yeah. connects. Uh, he is a green-suited, red-bearded sort of goblin-type man who lives in the sewers, never Mm. talks, but makes a series of bizarre whimpering noises. In Mm. Tokyo, his role was essentially to be a sort of Godzilla parody. It was Godzilla, but (laughs) with this little sort of rather sort of pitiable, weird old man instead of Godzilla. And in Mm. this, he becomes sort of a Beauty and the Beast character. It's a very different monster movie. He kidnaps a model called K.M., played by Eva Mendes, and takes her to his lair in the sewers. My my question on that is, if this is a scene where there are other people in it who are definitely not actors, then she doesn't seem, <laughs> she doesn't seem particularly relaxed in the situation by the end of it, and where he leaves her before yeah. he goes off to the next appointment. Yeah, this is the point in, in my original viewing of it where I just decided to relax, <laughs> just yeah. to see what happened. And yeah, then stopped trying to figure out what it was and just enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen him described as a satyr in, in when I've been mm. reading around this. is that sort of thing of him kidnapping a woman. He, he assaults um, uh, um, a, another young woman, bites her finger off. Yeah, and then lovingly licks blood up Eva Mendes's armpit, um, all while there's this sort of photographer who's just like thrilled that this is happening, <laughs> and it makes me wonder whether that bit's candid or not. There's another detail you um, you pointed out to me. I was reading what you've written about before um, in the gravestones in the scene. In the, that, yes, that scene in which the gravestones, which all say rather than a name or a date of death, they say visit my website and then have a hyperlink beneath it. Yeah. So and coupled that, with the, the factory that makes CGI before it, you've got another kind of a link in here that this is a movie about post-physicality, that all of the things that used to be solid and real, like factories and tombstones, are now digitising. Yeah, uh, it's oh, it's straight. I mean, you mentioned the Godzilla connection. I love the Godzilla music yes. as well as, as you go That's distracting, but I did pick up one of this time the, the URLs on the, the gravestones, mm. and it does later on feed back into the, the scene. But it, it's again 180 degrees away from what the next appointment is. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think one of the pleasures of placing the Michelle Murd scene here is that it is the most overtly comedic of the Hmm. set pieces and maybe that's why you had that reaction where you thought all right yeah i can just enjoy this yeah yeah all right it's a funny one yeah yeah the next one i think is still funny but it's a different sort of funny this reminded me a bit of like turn of the millennium chris morris when he was doing blue jam and jam that he plays a father who picks up his teenage daughter from a party 
and as they walk, as they drive home, they have a conversation that fits the exact mood of a sort of conversation that a disappointed dad would have with a wayward daughter, but mm. it's instead about her spending all of the party crying in the bathroom rather than being out socialising and getting drunk like he wants. And it's kind of, on one level, it's simple reversal of expectations gag, but there is something kind of ominous and slowed down to it that makes it work within this film. Yeah, it's, I mean, functionally, the film is a series of skits, as mm. as we say, interconnected by theme and by the scenes in the limo. Um, mm. Just him suddenly being this, you know, this chain-smoking dad who is um, talking to his daughter and all this. It's, it does have the ring of, like, something from, like, an early noughties BBC Three late-night sketch show yes. about it. Um, but it does it does get pretty real at the end, you know, just in, mm. thematically linking to the thing of, like, of him chiding the daughter for being shy for asking to get picked up early then for lying about it and the line he says to her that really struck me is your punishment is to be you yes <laughs> yeah it, it, as a, i mean it, again it links into what he's doing is that he escapes his couch and everything but it's just grim again it's as a punchline line type line yeah. goes it's it's sort of a bit real <laughs> so that's interesting though because presumably uh, as you say, it is a really harsh punchline, but it also mm. implies that she is inescapably herself, that she cannot yeah. change identity like he can, which just kind of raises the question of why she doesn't recognise that her dad is some weirdo who she's never met before. Yeah. Um, and, she does, and that she doesn't seem to question it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to go through all all nine in finger yeah. quotes nine of these, and then get on to what my theory is. But, fair enough, fair enough. But 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 um, but you know, coming out of that, your punishment is to be you. It's like, oh wow, where they're going to go with this next one? Where they go is interval. <laughs> <laughs> wow. They have a, a clip from a, a, a very early filmmaker called Etienne Jules Maillet who was one of the pioneers of cinema in the 19th century, of someone stretching their hands before playing mm. the piano. And then, as that, as that clip so expertly implies, Monsieur Oscar goes into a church with a gang of accordionists who come out of nowhere and play an all-accordion cover of Let My Baby Ride by R.L. Burnside. I had that stuck in my head for so long. Like, even on the way home from the cinema, I did. And for it's so long afterwards. So, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it lasts maybe two or three minutes of him just of him leading this band through. Mm. There's occasional break from a show. Toi, nerve, mad. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then out. And like, but you don't see him go, you don't see him get out of the limo or get back into the limo on either side of it, I don't think, right? Do no, I don't think in? so. Yeah. No, so I'm not counting that as one of the nine jobs. No. Uh, no. And and if, according to Wikipedia, which did such a sterling job recapping the plot to yesterday, if you've heard our episode on that, listeners, according to Wikipedia, it is not one of the nine jobs. The fifth job is the one where he plays a gangster who is assigned to murder a man who looks identical to him. It succeeds but also goes wrong in that the guy manages to get some good stabs in as well and it is left unclear which version of Monsieur Oscar has returned to the limousine here's where I here's where my thing starts to kick in mm -hmm. do you count that as one job or two 
That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I think, but I'm, I'm really glad that Wikipedia has counted this because every time I watch this, I think I'm definitely yeah. going to count the well, jobs this time and I just get lost. Yeah, well, here's where I'm headed with this. We'll get through to the end and then I'll count because I think there's more, one more than nine. And I think that one of these is potentially his real life. Okay, okay. I think that that's, I mean, I think it may be the daughter one that we've already talked about. We'll count them up properly as I've got them here. I, I disagree with Wikipedia because it doesn't count them. It doesn't count the guy who kills and the guy, you know, when it leaves identical corpses at the end of that sequence, it doesn't count them as two jobs. It counts them as one. Yeah. So that's where I question it. So he goes, um, he has a brief conversation with Mikel Pickley in the limousine who yeah. accuses him of getting tired and not keeping up with new technology. Uh, that's why he, he has that line though, isn't it? If I miss the cameras, yes. I miss being able to see the cameras, which again speaks so much to the theme of it. Yeah. And in the sixth sequence, he uh, the sixth sequence at first appears to be just a random thing he's doing, but it does, it turn out to be a job he puts on a balaclava runs out and shoots a banker who looks it must be said very similar to the banker that he was playing at the start of the film implying that that yeah. character has some sort of independent life it took me a few viewings to notice that me too that that's, yeah, yeah that, that he essentially kills himself from yes, the again. and again it's 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 another reading i mean it's again also the only way you know that's a job there are a few things like this where like you're not sure if it's a job or not mm. the, the only way you know it's a job is that he dies at the end and again walks it off <laughs> so yes yeah so that's a bit of a tip off and you know you, you sort of get celine involved in that as well where it's almost like he, he's made a mistake and it's it's almost like he's just gone to the wrong set like in, yeah. terms, in, the, in the in the terms of like acting it would be like, I don't know, let's say Christian Bale suddenly turned up on a Terminator set and going mental and showing everybody. <laughs> and everybody being so embarrassed, they decide, all right, he's John Connor now, which is what I assume happens with Terminator <laughs> Salvation. That's that's my theory anyway. Celine is a lovely character. I think it would be very easy to just make her a standard exposition dispenser. But uh, I think yeah. Edith Scobb has... A, a presence that is simultaneously elegant and barking mad in this movie that I really like a lot. Uh, yeah. But then the next job, which according to Wikipedia is job seven, uh, he is an elderly man on his deathbed who is comforting a woman who appears to be his niece uh, in what seems like a return to the kind of family relationship territory of the father and daughter job. Then at the end, it's refer it's revealed that the niece is another person working in whatever Oscar's line of work is. The first other person in this line of work we have seen in the film, and they just sort of congratulate each other on having done a good job and leave. Yeah, in the sketch, in like sort of the skits type structure of it all, there is, mm. you know, it's never as much as. It gets into some very deep stuff, but it is always funny. There's something funny in every single one. And then weirdly yeah. with this one, the thing that's funny is the reveal that it's not this, that it's not this serious thing. Mm. You know, it is, it is played fairly straight right up until that point. And the subversion there leads nicely into the next one as well, the next appointment. Yeah. Uh, the next appointment is with another person who is in Oscar's line of work called Eva, who is played by Kylie Minogue. Uh, they 
meet at the La Samaritan building, which is a huge abandoned department store in Paris. Uh, she tells him that she has an appointment as an air hostess, that that seems to be one of her jobs in the way that Oscar has jobs. They talk about the 20 years that they've known each other. She sings a song co-written by Leos Carax and Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy. And at the end of it, she jumps from the top of La Samaritan and apparently kills herself, which... It's, it sort of saddens Oscar, although it doesn't sadden her as much as if she was actually dead. You assume she will leave and go to be this air hostess, but I have some theories about the meaning of this, but I, I will yeah. throw the floor to you for a second. Um, well, first of all, on, on the song, I would have you know, found out it was co-written by Neil Hannon mm. just quite recently. And when you listen to it back, yeah, in, in the best way, it sounds like it. You know, it really yeah. does sound like he's channeling through... Through Kylie, it's, it's very much one of his. It's it's a beautiful sequence. It's just, it's again the thing that blows your hair back. Even like seven or eight different weird, un- unrelated things into this film. Yeah, it's, it's just so strikingly beautiful and sad. The, the, mm. the, it's another one of those where you you do know at this point that it's not. This is the other one that I think could possibly be a real thing. Even yeah. if you, you understand that by the end of it, she is going to walk it off, that this mm. isn't the ninth appointment. Or where are we up to on the Wikipedia things? Is it eight? Uh, they say that's eight. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, but I still think the murderer and the victim are two, two separate ones, which is what, by my count. So this is essentially like, it's it's sort of between jobs to me, this one. Yeah. Is that like the, the way that ends isn't part of their interaction with each other, it's part of her next job. And hmm. that beautiful musical sequence, even though you wouldn't necessarily burst into music, we don't know what the rules are governing these insane people, yes. transitory people who are living lives all over the shop. Yeah. It's beautifully well done. It's, it, I mean, it's it's played like it, it just sort of crashes into a limo, like Celine crashes into her limo, so it hmm. is just played as a chance encounter. And they have this interaction that's like... Um, there's this again, this is a subversion that she all the way through she's um, she's soft styled after Jean Seaberg. Mm. And but you know, with blonde hair as Kylie has. Yeah. And the question he asks her is, is that your hair? And she says, No, not yet. Because there's <laughs> this job coming around. You know, yes. she, they've got twenty minutes to recap the last twenty years, as they say. You know, the the beautiful line, I'm an air hostess living her last night tonight, as a as a elevator pitch of what existential thing she's about to jump into. Mm. It's it's the sequence that encapsulates me. I understand why Kylie's, and obviously for the sake of, for the purposes of this podcast, you know why Kylie's involvement is such a focal point for it because this to me is the film, and it yeah. seems to be independent of the the rigmarole, the appointments that he's got going on the rest of the film. I think there is there is probably something very true about that. It makes although we have seen Oscar sort of improvise long-term relationships with people and bluff them before it makes a certain degree of sense that if one of these people living this life needs to have a personal relationship it should be with someone who's doing the same insane job Hmm. Uh, so yeah I think it could be real there are also a lot of references to Carax himself here um La Samaritan also featured in Le Armand's De Point Neuf, which was his third film, I believe. Mm. And it was 
in, I mean, it's a great film. It really holds up. It was infamously a fiasco during production. It went massively over budget. Part of the reason why he makes films so intermittently, he's made two since with a third ready to go. Um, part of the reason why he makes films so intermittently is in, in part because uh, the failure commercially at Le Armand to point nerf caused people to go very cold on him. Mm. Um, the other thing is that this film is dedicated to Ekaterina Golubeva, the actress who is the mother of Carax's son, just as Ava is the mother of Oscar's son, she says. Um, and she died about just over a year before this film came out. Uh, it's never been clarified what of it may have been suicide. I feel, frankly, icky speculating. But yeah. as I say, the film is dedicated to her. It begins with Carax himself waking up alone in two beds that have been pushed together. At the Cannes premiere, Carax described cinema as a beautiful island with a very big cemetery. I think there is this theme of death going through it. And even if Carax did not go into this thinking, you know, I will make a film to help me deal with Ekaterina's death. I think that has to be on his mind. It can't not be on his mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's when that happened, he did drop what film he was developing and, and move on to this. And yeah, I think that going back to the, is it about cinema? It can be, but I think it is more about death than it's about yeah. these characters going from one thing to another that's that's inevitably going to be in there and i think speaking to that as well i, I didn't know about this background to it until i was reading around mm. for this so again that's another like reading on this film that's that really opens it up yeah um, the other thing i read in research is he was doing an interview uh, with the guardian which which goes nicely it leaves um it leaves the interview a lot to do because um he's he's a, he's a little bit um he's very withdrawn bit, isn't he leos Carax? yes yeah yeah, yeah. He, he, early on in the interview, he says, "Like I don't work with people who ask me questions, which is the problem with me talking to you." <laughs> but so you know, but but it's later on in it. He says that he made you know, whether it's this film or film or films in general, he says you sort of make films for dead people and then mm -hmm. show them to living people, which really struck me. Again, looking at it, um, revisiting it now, it really opens yeah. it up. So then we get to what Wikipedia claim is his ninth job i remember when i watched this i felt like this was maybe his real life but then i like I say <laughs> i find it impossible to count the jobs wouldn't uh, it be amazing we, if it was <laughs> I, that's uh, this is why i want it to be his real life let's go as home and have a no as a normal one <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, Celine says that uh, as a reward after all of that, he will be sent home to a loving family, all of whom turn out to be chimpanzees. Yeah, of course, that's why it. not? That's the scene, yeah. <laughs> and that's, it is so much played as him going home at the end of a long day. Mm. But he's like, does he, does he have uh, hair in that, that one? Does he have a wig on in that one? I can't remember. I can't remember either. I think yeah. the, the chimpanzees were kind of pulling my focus, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, yeah. Because it is, again, as I said, there's something funny in everyone. And in this one, again, it is a, a big punchline. It is, <laughs> it is a thing of like, yeah, of course, the family. Of course, the loving family. There's a pair of chimps. <laughs> <laughs> 
like, oh, all right, again, I'd really love to find out what it was that I saw the same day as this, but I was probably, I probably don't remember because I was still thinking about all of this, really. Yeah, what, but, what um, the hell could he watch that would match yeah. up? Yeah. Yeah, so there's an epilogue after we, after we leave Manchuria. Yeah. Uh, Celine drives the limo that she's been driving back to the uh, warehouse that has Holy Motors emblazoned on the front. It's their company and it's full of identical limousines. She puts on a mask that is similar to the one she wore in Ice Without Face, locks up, leaves for the night, and as you would expect, the limousines then start talking to each other. Of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of musing upon, similarly to, to how um, uh, to how earlier in the film they're talking about the cameras not being visible anymore. Mm. It's it's a thing that, I mean, that if it it cements the limo as this metaphor for a giant visible machine, something yeah. that's designed to draw attention, that we are now bored of seeing. Maybe yeah, like the, the kind the of machine that we infrastructure is invisible now. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, it prizes that whether it's the motion capture sequence where it's about erasing the movement that did it and projecting it onto something else mm. to make you go, how they do that. So you know, <laughs> whether it's you know, the, there's violence and there's. Um, you know, there's violence and other acts going on all the way through this film from someone who is essentially, as, as you say, Graham, just in the gig economy. Yeah. Just passing on from one thing to the next, apparently with no ill effect, just walking off, whether it's death or emotional turmoil, or watching someone they love fall from the top of a department store. Yes. Watching Kylie fall from the top of a department store. We all relate. <laughs> <laughs> we all relate to that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's fascinating to me, endlessly so. Um, it's mm. worth knowing, you mentioned about uh, Edith Scobbin, the, the eyes without a face yeah. uh, thing. Uh, she was cast, apparently, because characters already felt um, that the film ordered debts to eyes without a face. Yeah. So that was a deliberate reference, apparently. It was that, and uh, he cast her somewhere in the middle of the unbelievably protracted shoot of Learmont de Point Neuf, and yeah. most of her role hit the cutting room floor, and he'd always felt quite bad about that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's parts of it that are self-referential, but I never feel like it's indulgently self-referential. It is always the work of someone who wants to entertain you, to make you laugh, to make you cry, to do all those traditional things that films are meant to do. It looks gorgeous, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's got a, a large amount of surface pleasures. It just jumbles them up in this way that you haven't seen before. Hmm. I mean, structurally, it doesn't seem to have much interest in being a film on the surface mm. of it. But yeah, but but the fact that you can get this much out of it on a first viewing and then on subsequent viewings, and then the more you know about it, the sadder it is, or the funnier it is, or the more interesting it is. Yeah. It is. It does really hold up. What it's not just a thing of like, ah, what does it all mean? You know, upon mm. upon rewatching it, this this would be unbearable if it was any less entertaining than it is. And instead, yeah. it's it's a masterpiece. Yeah. I think the other thing about interpreting its meaning is if you assume that someone is hiring Monsieur Oscar to do these things, and they do seem to be part of some kind of company, it it makes you think about what the jobs that we deem important are, that Monsieur Oscar's repertoire includes assassinations, 
movie special effects and giving teenage girls anxiety complexes about how they behave at parties. Yeah. And that these are the sort of essential functions of a modern capitalist society, apparently. I think there's a degree of satire towards that. Yeah. And with the gig economy side of it, yeah, just the fact that no one's doing this, no one's specialising in looking after their daughter, or rather yeah. badly looking after their daughter. No one's specialising in, um, in licking blood on Eve and Mendes' armpits, unless, love, you know, you know Hollywood, these Hollywood types, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Eva Mendes was a real surprise when she was revealed to be in this, because she was riding pretty high at the time, as a Hollywood star, she'd done some art house things before, but more on the kind of the level of something like James Gray's We Own the Night, which is on one level an auteur film harking back to the 70s New Hollywood, on another level, it's a crime thriller in it. Uh, yeah. So seeing her in something that is so exuberantly mad was very surprising. Well, a credit immediately before this is a post credit scene in Fast Five. <laughs> uh, repressing a character from Too Fast, Too Furious. Uh, she's since not shown up again in in the franchise, but like, uh, but yeah, mm. she's she's kind of uh, retired from acting now. But she is she is she's good in this. I mean, it's yeah. it's surprising to see her show up, but it's another one of those things where when you get, if not, it was it's not like crossover hit type material, but if you get like you know festival favorite like this was coming with some hype. The yeah. angle, publicity-wise, is always going to be Kylie and Eva Mendes rather than the guy who says, I don't answer questions. <laughs> so, so there's that. <laughs> and also, can, can you say with certainty that Holy Motors isn't part of the Fast and Furious extended universe? <laughs> that would be incredible. Yeah, what we need is that Eva Mendes turns up in another post credit sequence, and this time the cars are talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Of course it is. <laughs> Fast and Furious <laughs> presents Holy Waters. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, th that is all incredible. And listeners, if you come away from this podcast with one thing, it is that you should watch Holy Waters, even if it doesn't sound like your sort of thing. I have so many friends who were not into art house cinema at all who have come away raving about this because it is a delightful and beautiful film. But part of what we're here to talk about is, of course, not just the cinematic merit of the film, it's the fact that it contains Kylie Minogue. I mean, as at the time of recording, Kylie's mm. been in the news because she's become the first female artist to achieve five UK number one albums in five consecutive decades, which is impressive going for someone who's still about 29, 31 tops. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very <laughs> um, good. Because I... I do a, a lot of research for these, as I know you do as well, and sometimes the process of researching can be quite similar to a kind of Stockholm Syndrome, where <laughs> you go in not having any particular interest in an artist, and then you become a fan just because you've spent hours watching clips of them on YouTube. But I think with Kylie, it is something slightly deeper. Um, I really loved that she turned up in this film and I, I quite like it when she turns up in any film because I think it's just a, a delightful little unusual thing but I realised the extent to which the story of my life and the story of anyone's life if you're under about 40 can be mapped out in Kylie Minogue songs. Yeah. Because I, I don't know, what, what, what was your sort of Kylie feelings before this? What was your take on her? 
um, from music perspective or acting wise? Well, let's let's start from the acting because the the acting CV is quite small, and I have a theory about why that would be. But let's let's talk about that because she did start off as an actress. Mm. I. I did think initially that I wasn't going to cover anyone who started off acting and then went into singing. But I think with Kylie, the singing side and the acclaim she's got as a singer has eclipsed her acting so thoroughly that it yeah. is completely fair to talk about her as a singer. Yeah, I mean, as you said, she started out in she started out in Neighbours. Yeah. And then kind of this pop career massively, you know, the stock well, Aiken and Waterhouse years hmm. leading into this, as we say, a career that now spans five consecutive decades. And when she was in Holy Motors, I did, um, in reading around this, I did see her say she doesn't want it, she made this film because she doesn't want it to be weird she's turning up in a film, hmm. was her position. She, didn't, she wanted to sort of get back into acting because it's a career that's sort of cut short by the massive singing career. Yeah. For me, acting-wise, the big the big thing is always going to be Doctor Who, because it always is for me. But um, yes. but she's in um, the 2007 Christmas special, Voyage of the Damned, where she's um, she and David Tennant team up to try and stop a space Titanic from crashing into the Earth. Pretty standard Christmas fair. It was <laughs> not, you know, not, um, not without reason, the most viewed episode of Doctor Who, on first broadcast since it was revived. You know, it yeah. pulled in like something like 13 million viewers consolidate on Christmas Day. And it's partly because it's Christmas, it's probably mostly because it's Kylie, let's be fair. And it's at the yeah. peak of the David Tennant era. She's great in that. And Doctor mm. Who fans being Doctor Who fans, there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about the kind of stunt casting that they did in the, the 1980s when it was announced that Australia's pop princess is going to ruin Doctor Who. But she's great in it. She's, yeah. you know, she's, she's of, a, of a set with some like one-off companies companions and specials uh the christmas specials normally find david tennant morping Uh, they usually (laughs) usually find the doctor morping full stop (laughs) coming as they do after a series finale and yeah she's in in the scheme of this massive disaster movie type thing uh, Mm. she's yeah she's extremely likable i mentioned that because having said what she said around the time of holy mortars um that she didn't want to be unusual to see her in a film the next, mm. the, like the big film that she was in after that was San Andreas, where I remember her specifically in a not very memorable film. This is the Dwayne Johnson earthquake movie. Yeah. Um, it, it was somebody's fault. Hey. <laughs> um, but she, she is the character who, who, is, who is horrible. She's in it for five minutes and dies horribly. Right. Like it's, so she for, she thoroughly earns her like terrible terrible death <laughs> at, at, at the in this collapsing building. And it was just such a weird thing that of all the people to cast, they cast Kylie Minogue to yeah. to harass Carla Cagino about her about her dead daughter, and then when pulled <laughs> on it, said, "Well, I didn't mean it like that," and then die die horribly because earthquakes are starting. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a weird sort of acting career that she's had. That she's one of the biggest stars in the world, but not so much for acting. Yeah, being more. Yeah, I would love to see him in more things. I think the reason why the acting career became secondary is because my theory is if you are a pop star who acts, you can do credible stuff. Yes, you can disappear into a path. You can absolutely hit that point where it does not, as she says, feel weird that you have Mm. turned up in a film. Yeah. But it has to be keyed into your music career in some way. Part of the reason why David Bowie has such a legendary film career is because while he is very good and transformative, even in his best roles, they all make sense 
as part of his musical journey, he becomes, you know, very uh, alienated in America. He makes the man who fell to earth. He goes through a mainstream phase and does a lot of pop records. He stars in a Jim Henson movie. He retires from live performance and becomes a more mysterious figure. He plays Nikola Tesla. There's a degree of congruence where even if it isn't planned, it shows that the same mind is picking out these scripts as is making these albums. And Kylie's never had that. I mean, she's made a lot of traditional kind of cheesy pop star movies like Biodome and Street Fighter. But the strange thing is they didn't come in her Stock Aitken and Waterman years. They came in the mid-90s when she was trying to establish herself as a more lasting, more experimental artist. Yeah. Um, On Boy, if if ever anyone... Um, took a limo to different stages of their own life. <laughs> it would be probably really well, yeah. different personas. But um, but on Kylie, yeah, what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is um, I'm surprised she hasn't been in more things off the back of Doctor Who. But then mm. I say that about most people who are regulars and regulars, I guess, stars in well, Doctor yeah. Who. <laughs> yeah. But I think this is this is maybe the point where you can look at a film that Kylie did and look at her musical career and spot some sort of connection. I mean, other than, obviously, I guess when she was doing Neighbours, there's a link there, because obviously someone saw her in Neighbours and thought, oh yeah, she'd be a good pop star. But beyond that, you have this very sort of dark experimental film where she sings this tragic ballad. And in the same year, she celebrated a 25th year in show business by making an album at Abbey Road where she did stripped back and orchestral reworkings of some of the most famous songs. So for the first time, there's a Kylie album and a Kylie movie where they feel like part of the same phase. I often think that because people often read pop stars in terms of the eras that they're in people overlook Kylie's movies because if you're trying to assess the confide with me years there is thank god no reason to watch Biodome (laughs) so that that's my theory anyway um you mentioned seeing her in that very strange role in San Andreas I would like Mm -hmm. to uh go for another (laughs) Another uh, very strange role she did. Did you know that she worked with Sam Taylor-Johnson? Wow. What was that for? Back when Sam Taylor-Johnson was primarily a video artist and she hadn't done Nowhere Boy yet, uh, they did a short called Misfit, which involved Kylie uh, topless, but with her back to the camera and with this pixie cut that is i mean it's not the same as the one that she has in holy motors but it's step on mm. the journey and she is looking over her shoulder and lip syncing to a, the last ever recording of a castrati so it, it ticks a number of boxes on your sam taylor johnson bingo card you've got the interest in celebrity you've got the interest in gender and sexuality And I remember at the time it was broadcast on late night BBC Two at the time when British television occasionally did used to show interesting things at night. And there was a lot of fuss about it because all of the papers went, see Kylie Topless on BBC Uh. Two. And you think, well, 
technically, yeah, but I can't help thinking if you're watching it for that reason, you are going to be utterly miserable. Uh, but yeah. it's on YouTube now, and it's well worth digging out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's got to be, hasn't it? It's got to be, especially the UK press, it's kind of tied to a showbiz type thing. It's good that yeah. that interview that I read, though, was kind of like, you know, her, her admitting that she'd need to see the film, she needs to see Holy Motors again in order to mm. understand it. It's the fact that it's funny, but it's not depressing, and that it's about everything. It's, and that seeking it out in order to do something completely different is the mark of the really interesting artist. And again, where's like where have the roles been since? That's what I'm yeah. wondering about. What is, I mean, looking at the the IMDb thing, I, I didn't know if it was going to be either way, whether Swinging Safari was going to be either like a, a sex comedy or like one of those really low market sort of uh, redubbed animated CG films that look like crap. <laughs> and, like, and, have, and have the voice of Kanye Minogue and James Gordon and Chris Reese Jones <laughs> and the Honey Monster, you know, just like random people off UK TV. <laughs> I did see the trailer for Swinging Safari. It's from uh, Stefan Elliott, who directed The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, The trailer sells it as a coming-of-age movie set in the 70s. It does look very broad, but I think less broad than, you know, you would think an Australian comedy called Swinging Safari would be. So, I don't know. It might be good. I don't think it's come out here, which is kind of astonishing when you think that Kylie is now basically a, we've adopted her as a national icon you know we've yeah. accepted her so completely yeah I've seen films with lesser stars still make it onto like the seven quid shelf for Asda completely. kind of like turn up with a giant picture of the star on the front saying see this person <laughs> whether it you know, no matter how much they're in the film. Yes. <laughs> it's just, yeah, to sell a film on a celebrity who's in it. But I think also part of what I got from the research project is just realising that I loved Kylie Minogue in general. I think she has a remarkable discography. I think she has a loyalty towards a gay fan base that is really touching, particularly since it came long, long, long before every female pop star sort of needed to court the gay market. I think, Hmm. you know, there is a difference in doing it now where it's not unwelcome, but there is a difference doing it now and doing it when Section 28 was still an actual law. Yeah. I think she seems remarkably unaffected by having had this insane career. Um, I I think one of the things that really impressed it upon people how much we love Kylie is when she had that breast cancer scare. And it did make people suddenly think about her in terms of more than just, oh, I think she's sexy, I like her records, I think she seems like fun. It forced people to actually think, oh, God, what would a world without Kylie Minogue be like? Hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's going far to say, especially since she's she's topped the charts so recently. And when that when Disco was announced, it was a thing of like, oh, finally, something in 2020 <laughs> has, gone, yes. has gone right. I don't think it's going far, it's like too far to say that she is at this point the, the, the best artist at her level. Mm, completely. You know, the, yeah, the, there's no one else who hasn't done... A little bit of crap every once in a while, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's not someone who's just turning out. A, a, I don't know if she if she turned around and did a Christmas album, it would be a really good Christmas album. She did, and it, it was. Yeah, yeah. See what, see what I mean? No, but yeah. If she just, I mean, as much as like the the latest thing she's on is that um, 
that um, that Children in Need official single where she contributes vocals to a cover of Stop Crying Your Heart Out, which is like, um, I can't not hear um, Oasis is sarcastic at this point. So like that as a charity yeah. single was was a bit blah. But you know, that's for charity and that's as near as you'll get to a crap record. I yeah. Think. <laughs> Just... Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, I think that for all her film career has taken a perhaps necessary backseat to music. She has quietly managed to work with a lot of interesting directors, Carax, Taylor Johnson. She's worked with Mikel Gondry, of course, on the video mm. for Come Into My World. Yep. So, you know, she's she's fucked up a pretty decent hit list. And I would like to think that as sort of time goes on, she will appear in more films because it, it seems to be a natural place for someone who has her combination of major star wattage and immediate likability. Yeah. I mean, if you've made me think by mentioning Boy, they're still pressing ahead with doing that Labyrinth 2. And if they wanted to make me interested in Labyrinth 2, just say yeah. Kylie Minogue's going to be in it. <laughs> yes. I'll go down that line. Just wherever it takes to make Kylie more Boy in terms of <laughs> filmography yes. and credits. Yeah. I'll take it. But, you know, in a film with so much else going on, she stands out, like, yeah. so much in Holy Mortars that, that that sequence, you know, there was, um, I was reading around that this was originally pitched to Juliette Binoche as, as a role to play and then completely re, restructured when um, they didn't, apparently their exes in real life, Carrex and uh, Juliette Binoche, and they mm. didn't get on, that didn't pan out, so it was completely rewritten for Kylie. Like, who, who was supposed to go do a Claire Denis film at some point. Again, where's the Claire Denis film? That's kind of well, that, that's the thing, because Kavak said that the main reason why he spoke to Kylie Minogue in the first place was because Claire Denis encouraged him to. And I, I learned many years later that this was, as you say, because of an unmade film. Uh, like mm. you, I would love to see Kylie Minogue in a Claire Denis film. But part of me kind of wished it wasn't. Part of me wished that, you know, Claire Denis just sits at home listening to Better the Devil You Know once <laughs> she knocks off work. Um, <laughs> it's to be hoped, yes. <laughs> but Karak said the only uh, Kylie Minogue song he knew when he started on this was her duet with Nick Cave, which... Yeah. feels off, like an authentically Leos Carax thing to happen, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but then she she turns up again in a film that I really hope we will cover on pop screen at some point in the future. She turns up in the back of another car in Nick Cave's documentary, 20,000 Days on Earth. Right. Just a couple of years later. Uh, which again is a really, really interesting film that has a Kylie Minogue appearance that stands out even in the midst of a load of other wonderful things. But yeah, I think that's that. That's I say that's covered it. I'm sure when I watch Holding Motors again, I'll think it's about something else. Yeah, we could come back this time tomorrow and do another <laughs> hour, probably yeah. on on the film and on Kylie, maybe. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad that you've you've kind of got into it, it, you know Stockholm syndrome or not. I'm glad you've got the appreciation from running around because I don't see like you know life you know life such as it is in Holy Motors is is fleeting and it jumps from one thing to the next. But the main thing we learn is that life's too short to pretend you don't like Kylie Minogue. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, of course I'm that. And I am very happy making that our final statement. Yeah. 
I'm going to have to get going anyway because I've got to go to another podcast where I play someone who doesn't like Holy Motors and then someone is going to come in and kill me <laughs> at some point. Uh, yes. Car's outside, so I will have to nip off. <laughs> so, yes, uh, that's been your lot for this week, listeners. Uh, until next week, I've been Graham Williamson. I've been Mark, or have I? Or has he? I have. Yes. I've been Mark. <laughs> and we'll see you next week with more pop screen. <laughs> <laughs>